Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. In the early 1980s, it was becoming clear that legal issues relating to consumer credit were an important area for the provision of free legal assistance by community legal centres. Lots of profoundly disadvantaged people were experiencing consumer credit-related legal problems and there was a need for some specialist expertise. And so the Consumer Credit Legal Service was founded. Dennis Nelthorpe was involved heavily in the founding of that centre and in its early years of work. And he was involved through the 1980s as the centre took on the cause of objecting to the renewal of credit licences for some lenders with questionable practices. One particular uh, case before the Credit Tribunal was a case challenging the licence renewal application by household finance. That led to not only the airing of some really significant problems with the way that credit providers were conducting their businesses, but a successful objection to the renewal of the credit licence and ultimately a settlement of the case that went on to ensure that many more people were provided with assistance with their consumer and credit problems. I talked to Dennis initially about the establishment of the Consumer Credit Legal Service. So the, the fledgling financial counselling movement was beginning to raise issues that were not going to be dealt with by general's legal centres, like um, what happens to a bill of sale if a person bankrupts. And so there was a need for specialist advice in the consumer credit area, uh, which is kind of interesting because it wasn't exactly the sort of area that most of us had focused on at university, but we thought we would give it a try anyway. And interestingly... I think we began in 82, a number of lawyers at big firms very kindly suggested quite openly we should stick to our knitting on crime and family and that we would be murdered in the bloody civil jurisdiction. And so you came to establish with... Paul Bingham, who fortunately was a near genius at credit law, so it turned out that our knowledge was a lot more sophisticated than had been anticipated. It was started as a night service. It was a bit of a giggle because there was a question of, you know, how much we knew about what we were doing. Um, we started with a night service, quickly discovered that attracting funding in the consumer finance area was probably easier than in some other areas, and so fairly quickly established a daytime service. And, of course, one of the things was that because no-one had ever represented consumers, there were dozens of practices that were both were unethical, you know, appalling, but often grossly illegal, 
that had simply never been challenged. And the assumption was, well, no one's ever, we've never got into trouble before, so we'll just keep doing it. The 1984 Credit Act provided for a licence renewal scheme and a dedicated tribunal to consider renewal applications. Dennis Nilthorpe talked to me about what they observed of practices across the credit industry, the degree to which they had cases involving Household Finance Corporation before its application for renewal of a credit licence came before the tribunal, and the realities of running a case before the tribunal on a shoestring budget as a small community legal centre. So they set up a licensing system where companies had to show that they were fair, honest and efficient. And randomly, everyone from a bank to a small finance company could come up in the list and unusually the legal service had standing. I might add, after a couple of the cases we ran, we lost it pretty quickly. Um, But while we had standing, household came up and we only had about half a dozen complaints. Um... But household were using the same um, legal techniques and the same documentation as a number of other companies. So we had a reasonable knowledge of what they were doing. And the first thing that happened was that in examining their documentation, we suddenly discovered all sorts of things like... um, a financial counsellor rang up and said, uh, the vehicle securities register fee is $6, why are they charging 9 Very good question. We just rang up and said, is there an explanation? No, there's not. Now, the interesting thing is we then decided to check all the other fees and stamp duties and discovered that they were charging stamp duties that no longer existed. They were charging an incorrect stamp duty. And all of these wrong fees meant that the interest rate on the contract was wrong, which had horrendous implications. But it also meant they had to go and see how many times they had charged the wrong fee. And just to follow through the vehicle security register fee, they said, oh, it was an accident. It wasn't dishonest. Of course, we asked in the hearing, so did you pay individually or did you pay them monthly? monthly. So did you pay the right amount or the wrong amount? Well, the right amount. So at the end of every month, you had an amount left over, which was growing. What did you do with it? Oh, we put it into general revenue. Now that's dishonest. And so what began as six or nine complaints turned into, well, uh, 232 with the wrong security register fee, 436 with a stamp duty that didn't exist. And before you knew it, we had like 1,500 different cases of complaints. And so then this was uh, under the Credit Act as it then stood, there was the, the authority which was a sort of standalone tribunal uh, and it considered, as you say, whether it was some um, uh, appropriate that the the credit license be extended, and so there were there were, as I read the decision, basically three broad areas in which you made objection. There was a failure to lend responsibly, 
there was um, a, a whole lot of questions around the administration of the loans and then there were issues about the way in which they went about then collecting their debts. Is that a fair summary? That's right. And these were based really broadly on pretty standard practices with the companies. Um, now, one of the other interesting things is that they quickly went and got themselves one of the largest law firms in the country and a couple of QCs and a bevy of juniors. But none of those lawyers had ever worked with a company like this. So our team, all three of us, understood not only the documents, but we often understood the shorthand hieroglyphics on their cards and we knew what certain words meant. Um, so we understood much more clearly the, the client than their own lawyers. And their lawyers throughout the entire hearing were f routinely caught by surprise because they just did not understand the nature of their client. So the law was phrased in such a way that they could say, oh, yes, look, we've been bad, but we've turned over a new leaf and therefore we'll be fair, honest and, uh, fair, honest and efficient in future. You should give us a licence. They waited until two-thirds of the way through the hearing to fess up. But astonishingly, having done that, one of their most senior people then went out and decided in the, most, in the crudest possible way to do something grossly dishonest and staff of the company came to us and told us what had happened and so having told the authority they turned over a new leaf we were able to present evidence that within weeks of doing that the senior management had in fact engaged in the most dishonest possible behaviour. How long did this run for? The uh, an appallingly long time for a legal centre. We had assumed that it might run three, three weeks. I think in our worst nightmares we thought three months. It actually ran for about nine months, three days a week uh, with almost no other breaks. And we, as I said, we had two, two solicitors and an article clerk. We decided to get assistance from a QC once in the middle of a hearing who made a terrible tactical blunder and we decided we'd rather live with our own mistakes after that. And it then took about another, I don't know, three or six months for the decision. So from start to, for instance, the discovery phase um, was like an exercise that no one could ever have imagined and, and that alone took like three days of sitting in a room. It was not an exercise that a community legal centre was particularly well suited to engage in, I have to say. And not one that you would necessarily have embarked on had you known <laughs> what it would ultimately look like, I presume. No. Um, I think if someone had said, this is what's going to happen, we'd have said, well, how are we going to survive that? Uh, and I might add, having finished the first one, my dear colleague, Paul Bingham, decided that he was heading for the bar and he was the brains behind these cases. And I'm like, yes, but he's left me with another one about to start. What am I going to do? Caused us terrible problems. And so how did you sustain the service at the same time? So we had a, another lawyer holding the fort who was incredibly inexperienced, uh, who never saw us from day to day, might have even been running four days a week. Um, 
and so all the rest of the cases were done by like one um, one daytime lawyer and uh, the admin staff. But I might add, we were no, nothing if not ambitious. I ran one of the first class actions under the then new Victorian class actions law while we were doing this by running it with a nighttime volunteer staff. So we were kind of gluttons for punishment a bit. Ultimately, the Consumer Credit Legal Services' objection to HFC's application for renewal of its credit licence was successful. The licence was not renewed by the tribunal. Of course, the company appealed this to the Supreme Court and the Consumer Credit Legal Service found itself embroiled in Supreme Court proceedings. It was a daunting prospect, but it ultimately led to settlement discussions and in the end, those settlement discussions led to a really interesting resolution to the case. Lots of people affected by the practices of HFC either couldn't be contacted or had been affected uh, in such a small way that it was not economical to make specific restitution in each case. And so the parties settled on the basis of what's known as Cypre. This is a term in law which means that in a context like this, Money can be used to promote the interests of a group of people affected rather than necessarily being paid to individuals who have been impacted by unlawful practices. There was a substantial sum paid by way of settlement which went into the creation of a new community legal centre and the ultimate successor to that community legal centre is the Consumer Action Law Centre which is one of the most significant voices in consumer law in Australia today. So HFC has refused the renewal of its credit licence. Which it immediately appeals. Yeah, and then you're before the Supreme Court. Did you have outside help then or were you still just doing it? Well, we were trying to decide because I think they said the Supreme Court appeal was de novo. So it was like you have to be willing to start again from scratch. Now, someone said to us, oh, you'll never, you'd never settle. And it's like, but what are we going to do? Spend the rest of our life running one? Because if we'd won the Supreme Court appeal, they could still apply the next day and say, we've learned our lesson, we've started again, we won a licence. So the question was, like, how long do you want to litigate against one company? And the answer was, well, no longer than we could you know, avoid it if we could. So the, the need to settle it was pretty significant. The other thing is as we, two things happened during the course of it. Each time we added a client to the list of cases that we wanted to talk about, they would, um, we would issue in the credit tribunal, they would get all the discovery, some further embedders and then settle it. So all the clients who were in there were getting like a Rolls Royce settlement but also they had all these other cases where they were sending money, people were getting checks all over the country. So the actual people who'd been wrongly dealt with were all getting, you know, a great return from the litigation. So the question was how long could we sort of keep the whole thing going? They came to us via a public relations firm, which I thought was kind of funny, and they said, oh, you know, we've been told you'll never settle. Now, 
how anyone could think that. And look, our, when we started Household, their lawyers came to our office to deliver some documents and we respectively realised that their waiting room was bigger than our office. And the notion that we could just litigate this forever was like, and particularly once Paul had gone to the bar. So the idea of a settlement was always going to be pretty attractive. Um, interestingly, I tried to get them to settle on the basis of an Australia-wide because they had licences in the other jurisdictions. I thought it was reasonable to assume that they were going to face challenges in at least one other one. Um, they initially wouldn't do that and later tried to and then it fell over. But um, So we were settling for Victoria only um, and that was a really interesting experience. So you settled and it was quite an interesting settlement because, as I understand, one of the issues was that um, it was impossible to identify exhaustively all of the people who had been impacted by their bad practices. In particular, with a very hot topic even today, with the mis-selling of consumer credit insurance. So you could look at what they did and how they sold it and you could assume that it was somewhere between 10 and 90 percent but actually identifying which particular clients was always going to be difficult so their initial proposition was that because they couldn't identify we couldn't identify who had been wronged they should not have to pay anyone any money which was obviously pretty unattractive to us i'd been to the u.s on a law foundation grant and seen a settlement process in the US called C-Prey, uh, a French phrase, one of the few, which means the nearest best thing. So I told them that, don't you worry about the fact that we can't identify, have I got an idea for you? And in the end, um, they decided that, and I said, look, what they should do was we would pick an amount of money, horse trade over the money, they should put that into an account and that we would call it the Consumer Law Centre and that we would start a new Consumer Law Centre to assist low-income consumers with however much money we decided. They initially offered a million dollars, which would have only lasted about three years. So we horse-traded. I said no and hoped they'd come back. They were more desperate than I was and we eventually got 2.25 million which not only lasted over 10 years, I think it lasted 12, but it also enabled us to attract other funding at a ratio of about $3 for every dollar. Uh, so we ended up over a 10-year period probably spending about $6 million on legal centres, on legal services. And so why the decision to um, create a new centre rather than to roll the money into the Consumer Credit Legal Service? Um, for two reasons. One was that the although we were the lead objector, Consumer Affairs were also an objector, and the Minister for Consumer Affairs had some say in what we did, and they were unwilling to have the funding go to directly to the Consumer Credit Legal Service. And in a sense with C-Prey, I'm probably not entirely unsympathetic to that because I'm not sure you really want a form of litigation where um, you're acting for consumers but always intending for you to be the beneficiary. 
The second issue was the consumer credit, like a lot of legal centres back there, was entirely based on case or funded for casework. And I wanted the capacity to do policy work. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was set up a policy arm to mirror the financial, the casework arm. Now, my view was that I would have merged them the moment that I thought I could get away with it, but it actually took about a decade and we now have Consumer Action Law Centre, which does both casework and policy. Yeah, and, he, and he integrates the and two. And integrates the two. Yeah. Which is what I wanted in the first place, really. So Cyprey, um, or Cyprey, um, is that's a rare remedy in, in litigation. Is it less likely now because we have... Um, electronic record keeping and better capacity to identify who the specific uh, affected people are, uh, or do you think there is still going to be opportunities to use that approach? So there are a couple of things worth noting. I met someone from Treasury a couple of years after the settlement who told me that if Treasury had ever heard about it, they would have opposed it for all they might, which was a bit misconceived because probably 10, 15 years later you had both ASIC and the ACCC. Now, interestingly, there have been a number of CPRE settlements, nearly, and the vast majority, funnily enough, have been based around the mis-selling of consumer credit insurance, which was the basis for the first one. But there have been others, and they're particularly suited when you find that, for instance, there might be a dispute over illegal fees or incorrect fees where, you know, you've got a million people who are all owed $2.00, uh, and it's simply impractical to both identify and even send it back. I remember in the Avco case, um, they said they shouldn't have to send back amounts under two dollars because it was like you know too costly. Now we at the time said they had a legislative protection that said they should have to pay it. But clearly, from a practical point of view, there is a value in sea prey and there have been some ongoing use of it, particularly in financial services. Gluttons for punishment, the staff of the Consumer Action Law Centre after Household Finance went on to involve themselves in another challenge to a credit licence renewal application by Avco Finance. You um, said that immediately after this one finished that you then had another proceeding along the same lines against... Uh, Avco Finance. Right. Uh, and um, the chairman of the first tribe of the authority had a triple bypass and we ended up with a very different chair who was fairly sympathetic to what we were doing. But the interesting thing was because we had highlighted all these mistakes they kind of also created these reverse class actions for every contract that was shown to have a mistake on it. And in the case of Avco, that was like two, 300,000. So they were creating these other cases um, and for every mistake you found, it kind of like had a multiplier of five. Well, how did the Avco litigation turn out? Um, well, as I said, there was a change of the chair and we and we also probably suffered a little from not having Paul Bingham, who, he, who was pretty much irreplaceable. Uh, but on the other hand, we got a huge number of acknowledgements that there had been breaches. 
Um, we had, it created a much more significant, what was called Section 86, which was the penalty case related. Um, so we would say that it was successful, but the stress it put on myself and the colleagues was a bit beyond the pale. I mean, in the end, you can probably only run a couple of those cases and, um, you know, I think two of those. We did have some smaller ones that were beneficial as well. But I would say that they were successful in the short term in changing a lot of industry practices, a lot of documentation, um, and probably making the industry aware that it would never again be able to just act without scrutiny. And I think once the industry realised, and that didn't solve the consumer credit insurance problem, but for instance, there were a appalling practices on repossession and different things that, that disappeared overnight. For instance, one of the AVCO cases, the AVCO staff tried to impersonate the sheriff, get a client to bring their car that was the subject of security so that they could sort of illegally repossess it. I mean, that's like a pretty extreme thing to do. These cases came at the beginning of a period of improvement in the rights of customers of consumer credit providers. Dennis Nelthorpe reflected with me on the succession of changes which followed these cases and on the impact of those cases and how he looks back on them now. One of the responses to these cases was the industry, the, the Credit Act only came in in 84. By the time we got to 88 and we'd run now on 89, the industry was desperate to get rid of the uniform credit laws because they didn't like what we'd done with it. And we were asked to support national legislation, but at the time, there was no ASIC. And we were concerned that, like the Insurance Contracts Act, the law would end up an orphan. And we said... And, and the other reason they wanted national legislation was they were intending to water down all of the, right, the hard-fought rights that were in the 1984 Act. And we got a lot of criticism for opposing, at first instance, national uniform laws, which we would normally have supported. Once ASIC was created, we were much more sympathetic to a national law because there was a regulator that would oversee it. And that's what it really needed, because prior to the existence of the national regulator... Um, I think it's fair to say that although theoretically state consumer affairs bodies were meant to enforce the law, it was actually left to three consumer credit legal services, which was a a bit of a tough gig. We then also saw the industries themselves recognise a need for alternative to the courts, and it was actually the banking industry that that, that asked us to work with them on the creation of an ombudsman, And whilst we had some concerns, um, you can now see that the the financial ombudsman, now AFCA, has virtually completely replaced the courts as a dispute resolution mechanism. And and I might add, trying to run every case we ran in the credit tribunal from 84 to 86, I think almost without exception if we won was appealed to the full court of the Supreme Court. Now... Again, that was an incredible imposition on a legal centre and a terrible imposition on the clients. So we needed an alternative because that was never going to be viable. 
do you think that those processes, those dispute resolution processes and the oversight of ASIC as regulator has um, substantially reduced or eliminated those sorts of appalling practices? Um, uh, yes, from the big players, but of course then, you know, um, you have payday lenders come onto the scene. But I think things like grossly illegal repossessions of uh, or threatened repossessions of the household goods of you know, the poorest of the poor have disappeared. Um, things like um, repossess or repossession of um, cars that in fact have got no resale value. So a lot of the worst practices did disappear. Interestingly, consumer credit insurance rip-offs are only now being dealt with, and touch wood, I think we're finally seeing a solution. But I think the other thing is there are... Back then, the problem was that there were only half a dozen places you could go to get representation. Um, now we have an ombudsman scheme that can take virtually everything. So I do think the lot of the consumer has improved extraordinarily. And so as you reflect back on that, what gives you the most pride is that the, the fact that, that that has been part of the push towards more effective regulation is that the, the legacy in the formation of the Consumer Law Centre and now Consumer Action Law Centre, or is it simply getting through that enormous exercise of running the litigation? Um, one thing I would say is I think we've also been able to build a national financial counselling network that has been able to provide paralegal advice in a way that's not occurred anywhere else in the world. And I think that network has also been incredibly influential. Um, when I look back, uh, one of my observations is that a small group of committed individuals was in many respects, you know, the, the number of people working on this at any one time from the early 80s to the mid 90s uh, or to the 90s, so the first, say, 10 years in particular, we probably only had 10 to a dozen people working on this. And we were able to fundamentally change industries, regulators, the whole lot. Um, so I do look back on that and say, well, it might have nearly killed me in some ways, but it was worth it. Thanks for joining me for this episode of In That Case, talking to Dennis Nelthorpe about this really interesting 1980s credit licensing case which continues to have impacts on our public debate about credit and banking practices to this day. Once again, previous episodes are available on the website, on Stitcher and on Apple Podcasts and you can find me on Twitter at, at @townsendjolc. I'll look forward to joining you for the next episode of In That Case.